Alright guys, welcome to the first episode of Red's Room Podcast. Uh, this is your host, I'm Red. My name is Jake and I will be a part of this podcast and today we're getting into a few hosts of topics but they all surround a book called Occult Theocracy and without further ado we'll get started right now. Yeah, our book uh, that we're going over, Occult Theocracy, um, it was originally two books, first the first one published in 1931, and then the second in 1933, and then it was put together into a single book. It's a compilation of data on occult traditions, religions, and various secret societies. Uh, there's a lot in this book, but before we get into everything that's in there, let's learn a little bit, get a little backstory, and learn, learn about its author, the late Edith, Edith Starr Miller also known as Lady Queenborough. Yeah, I've noticed that whenever you're on, like, when you're researching, they kind of use those two names interchangeably. On Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. So Edith Starr Miller is her birth name, and Lady Queenborough is the title that she gained after she married uh, the Baron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a little bit of info about him. Yeah. Here, I'm just going to read a little bit of this here then. Um, it says, uh, she was born July 16th, 1887 in Newport, Long Island, to a very wealthy family at the time. And the first 33 years of her life, we don't know a lot about her. All we know is she just lived in their 30,000 square foot mansion. Um, the mansion still stands today, and it's historically referred to as the William Starr Miller House. Then... In 1921, she marries the Baron, who we mentioned, uh, Baron Queenborough, his name Almerick Paget. Uh, they then buy and move to Campford Place, located 20 miles north of England. And over the course of their marriage, they had three children. Um, I know so far this sounds pretty dry, but that's all we really know about her early life. There's not there's not a lot of details to get no there's very little information that we can find about her and that's probably about this all we'll know for you know yep yeah that's about it so once she gets here and she marries and has children this is when we start to learn some things about her so the first thing that's said about her which we can't really verify it sounds opinionated but uh, might be true, might not, but Wikipedia and a few other websites describe that during this time, her and her husband become interested in astrology and grow increasingly pro-fascist. And I know when I'm reading the book that she does hold some anti-Semitic views. So to some people, she's viewed as racist, um, but I'm not sure if that's true or not because... It seems like the anti-Semitic views that it seems like she holds more revolves around that she believes there's a conspiracy around Judaism and that it is not a religion at all, but it's a secret society posing as a religion. So maybe she was racist, maybe she wasn't, maybe she was just conspiratorial-minded. I'm not sure. You're free to make your own opinion about it, do your own research, but I think it is definitely a gray area as far as either way you could take it yeah kind of lost the time mm-hmm. very lost all right i'm gonna keep reading a little more about what we got here so 
uh, during her time in England, she reads this book. Now, this is kind of the source where everything starts to come together. So she reads this book. It was a very influential book of the time. It was called The Devil in the 19th Century, written by Dr. Batali. And this is a book that, uh, a very conspiratorial book. It supposedly reveals secret rites and orgies um, of all these diabolic secret societies. Should be no surprise that it's loaded with just conspiracies about Freemasonry. I mean, a lot of conspiracies nowadays are, so not a surprise that back then it was the same story. But what's kind of weird about it is the author, Dr. Batali, at first, that's how it comes out. The book comes out. It's printed that way. But then later on, this journalist, an editor named Gabriel Pages, also known as Leo Taxel, he comes out and says that he actually wrote the book and that he fabricated it to be an anti-Freemasonry, anti-clerical hoax. And this is another instance where it's so old and so little documentation about it that I don't know if that was ever verified that he actually fabricated it or if this Dr. Batali was real and he wrote it. So we'll just have to draw our own conclusions here. Could totally be a hoax. Definitely open to, to interpretation. However, whatever you think, you're free to that opinion. And there's probably never a full way to figure everything out. Very little documentation. A lot of weird shit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And really the point for what we're talking about is whether it was real or not, to Edith it was real. Mm-hmm. So it was in her reading this book that it kind of just sets her on this path. She just, this lifetime commitment, she just seems to become obsessed with researching secret societies and determined to understand occult philosophy and expose these secret satanic societies that, according to her, were largely uh, masonry and Judaism. These are the groups that she supposed were controlling society and advancing the agenda of the super rich. You know, it's just the same kind of conspiracy things we still hear about nowadays. So... She has this uncle named Lloyd E. Warren, who, for some reason, he's pretty important to her in this work while she's doing all this research about these societies. And the only reason we know that is because she dedicates the book to him, and she refers to him as, quote, who first guided me in this work. So whoever he was or whatever, his, whatever he thought, he definitely influenced her to just research these societies and just find out whatever she can about them. We can infer that they were close. Yeah. For sure. They were definitely close. And with all this, we can kind of understand the origin of why she kind of started making this her life mission to write this book. But we prog- as we progress, let's go on. Yeah, exactly. So she then spends... Like I said, she spends years researching all this information that eventually becomes her book. And finally, in 1932, so if you remember, in 31, she published the first half of the book. In 32, she gets divorced from her husband. 
and the only reason she says is because of cruelty. So she said he's cruel. It's this kind of sudden, seems like a sudden divorce, and then she moves to Paris. And it's only speculation, but the divorce could have been because of the book. Uh, could have been because her husband, the Baron, didn't approve of what she was putting out there. Either because it's conspiratorial and could be like thought of as crazy, or maybe some of it's true and people he knows or he's a, things he's a part of is exposing. There's really no way to know. Yeah. You could assume that he probably thought it thought her research was maybe a little weird or off-putting she starts getting hyper when a lot of people whenever you have someone who gets hyper into someone some uh, hyper into something it can kind of be off-putting because it can be a lot and when we get into what is some of the things that are in this book you will be able to understand a little more yeah not easy just to live in with someone who's just obsessed with something all the time if, Mm -hmm. if that is the case so they divorce and then she finishes the book in 33 and then all of a sudden she just dies at the time only 45 years old and another another time again where we can't find too much information on the death all we know is that it happened really suddenly um she seemed to be in good health um i found on one random website there was a reference to her possibly having a surgery but i can't really find any more details the only thing that's that i can find on wikipedia and a few other websites is that there was suspicious circumstances so it seems it seems kind of odd she's researching all these conspiratorial things she's about all these societies that are uh, secret societies that are trying to control people and have all these diabolic Machiavellian schemes and then she dies suddenly right after she publishes it it just looks a little fishy and it's kind of fueled other people having their own conspiracies about her yeah definitely uh it's got the building blocks for people to want to be interested in it for sure yeah definitely and then to add to it shortly after she dies her uncle, Lloyd E. Warren, if you remember the one who sets her on this, mm-hmm. um, he dies. And he dies by sleepwalking out of a six-floor window. And to me, that just sounds like classic cover-up for killing someone. Yeah. I mean, he could have he could have sleepwalked out there. I don't know. It's got to be a pretty big coincidence. Like, that's, that's pretty... That would be... If that is true, that's very interesting. Yeah, it seems very coincidental. Yeah, very like, coincidental. Just, I don't even know if I've... Have you heard of anyone? Sleep? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know if I've Enough rambling about it. Right. <laughs> so, whatever happened here, guys, it's very odd. But the real details, you know, they're all kind of lost to history, so we can't really go from there. But let's talk a little bit yeah. about how people have kind of viewed this. So... There's kind of two views around this whole situation here. Um, One is that uh, she's just, you know, like racist and... um, Crazy. Yeah, crazy, um, conspiratorial-minded, obviously. Yeah. Um, We can kind of see how that picture can be painted of her. Very easily. And the other is that, no, she's 
not crazy. Um, since she was married to the Baron, um, she had access to, to some of these groups and to people who could tell her about these groups. And she was able to uncover real things. And that through that and through her exposing it, that she was possibly murdered and any of these ideas of the people attacking her, it's just to discredit the work that she did. Yeah. Lump her into something, put her in a box, she's crazy. You know, very easy to do it that way. Yeah, so those are the those are the two views on her. The two kind of strong stances that you'll find when you kind of research about her. And they're both they're both fair. Right, right. Yeah, they're both fair. Uh, but just due to the fact that you can't really find a ton of information about her and it also being a completely different time of the very early 1900s, like, it's just really hard to say. It's really hard to say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I will tell you, when you read her book, there are some things that might throw up some red flags, and I'm going to talk about one of those right now. And that is that um, she talks about Aryans or the Aryan race. And to any of us nowadays, when we hear that, we instantly think of Nazis or Mm -hmm. neo-Nazis. We instantly just think of racism, of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, superior race that Hitler and all his delusions dreamed up and, you know, pretty demented stuff. And when we... When we see her say, use that word, when we read her using that word, that might be what comes to your mind, understandably why. But I want to clarify a few things about this because I think from what I've read in here and what I've come to understand about her is I think that she gets the term from theosophy, which is also where the Nazis got the term from. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of predating the Nazis. So theosophy had this idea of these root races and here's a quote from madame madame blavatsky she's sort of the mother of theosophy and this is what she wrote about about the uh arians so quote she said the arian races for instance now varying from dark brown almost black red brown yellow down to the whitest creamy color, are yet all of the one and same stock, the fifth root race, end quote. So by that quote, it doesn't sound like this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, superior, white race. Sounds a lot more open to me. Yes, it does. It sounds a lot more open. There's all the colors in there. Mm -hmm. So it to me, in theosophy, racism isn't attached to this um, idea. So I think that's where Edith is drawing from. And by what she writes in the book, it seems like she is definitely familiar with the beliefs of theosophy. So I would assume that she knows what they believe, and this is where she's drawing some of her ideas from. Yeah, I, I couldn't really say it better. Well said. Yeah, I doesn't really sound r- racist or doesn't really sound bad to me, but yeah, just maybe an, an antiquated yeah, uh, idea sure. of it's definitely old of, too. Yeah, 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 yeah of very how, old. How they thought maybe the different races of the world came from. Yeah, 
so we've been talking here for a while and let's go to maybe what Edith thought so we don't know a lot about her mostly from her book so here's a few quotes from her book to just let us understand a little bit get an idea of her yeah yeah exactly so the first quote i don't know jake do you want to read this first quote here maybe uh, yeah i'll give it a read let me tell every woman however much protected whether dairymaid or duchess that the safeguards which she remains to be throws around herself are but a mirage of the past her own and her father's future are at the mercy of those occult forces nice doing my best here <laughs> yeah and we got one more quote here. You want to read this second quote? Well, why don't her? you knock out the second one for me here? Okay, sure. Second quote. Um, In offering this book to the public, I have endeavored to expose some of the means and methods used by a secret world. One might almost say an underworld. To penetrate, dominate, and destroy not only the so-called upper classes, but also the better portion of all classes. So... These quotes kind of give you a little insight to here. She definitely seems to believe in some sort of cons malicious conspiracy um, that's going to affect everyone down to their children. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, she seems like a feminist a little bit for the like she wants more. Uh, yeah. Like a feminist. Yeah. yeah. Equality. Uh, she obviously doesn't like the class system with, I'm assuming, people having it a lot easier or having, having advantages or having access to certain information that we will get here to that is yeah. gatekeeped. She, yeah, and at the time, she definitely could have been viewed as a feminist figure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you yeah. have a woman here who's supposedly, you know, exposing all these societies. She's writing her own books mm -hmm. you know she's voicing her own opinions so that's pretty big for the time very respectable very respectable yeah so now we've kind of got a little backstory here we've gone into all about her we've gone into opinions about her a little bit about her um but we haven't even got to the interesting part of the book yet we haven't even got to the book itself so let's dive into a little bit of what's in this book that is occult theocracy it's it's a there's a lot in it 100 percent. there's a there's a ton of information in this book we're only going to dive into a little bit but i'm excited to get into it definitely um there's some chapters here on freemasonry knights templar rosicrucians there's a bunch on diff many different religions and then there's a couple on the illuminati and these are all things that i'm sure everyone wants to hear about but we can't cover all of that. No. So uh, I'm going to recommend go ahead and buy in the book. You can find the reprints on Amazon pretty easily. They're pretty inexpensive. Um, and just looking into those things yourself. I cross-reference this book many times when I'm looking into one of these things. So totally recommend it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great read. It's sectioned off really well, too. So you just want to page around and look into certain topics you find interesting it's a it's a good read for sure definitely so the first thing that we're going to talk about this book it's actually all the way in the back we're going to talk about the index so there's a couple in there but one specific one we're going to talk about 
is this index on symbols. Um, you'll find it towards the back there, and it shows that throughout the book that she's employed a few signs, and that when you see those signs next to someone's name, it will indicate that they belong to a certain group. So there's three different signs and three different groups that she points out. Um, the first one, it's the symbol she uses is the Star of David. I think it's pretty obvious that that's pointing out that that person is either a Jew or they're a Hebrew or they're an Israelite. Then the next symbol that she has for the next group, it's three dots stacked in like a triangle or like a pyramid. And that indicates that that person is a Freemason after the year 1717. I'm assuming it's because that's the oldest date that she can track. And then the last symbol, it's six dots. So it's like the Freemason symbol, like three dots and like a triangle. But, but it's like that plus it mirrored on itself, making like a diamond shape. Mm-hmm. And that symbol will show that that person is a member of the Martinist order. And then for the rest of that index, about 20 pages long, is just names. And you can reference those names and they'll either have those symbols or they won't next to, next to their name. And then you'll know what they belong to. Just kind of a cool little side note. You can see it in the book. You can just check it in that index. And She's doing our best to make it easy for us. Yeah, she's yeah. Doing our, she's doing her best. Yeah, she is. And so if you want to, it's pretty interesting if you're ever researching any one of these persons and you can just see that laid out in there. Kind of a cool little side note. Yeah. Okay. So that's this the first thing we wanted to point out. That's kind of the simple thing. So the second thing we're going to point out gets a little more in depth. Goes kind of deep. So... Where it starts is in one of her earlier chapters titled Egyptian Esotericism. And in this chapter, she refers to ancient Egypt as an illustration of theocratic power. And she talks a lot about their god Thoth. And this is the same god that was taught to the Greeks. The Greeks referred to him as Hermes. Anyone familiar with their mythology uh, will know this. This won't be like new information for them, but she goes on about this. So in this god Thoth, the Hermes, were these three great powers, that of royalty, of law-giving, and of high priesthood. And it's with these three powers that they then give him the full god name of Hermes uh, Trismegistus, or Hermes the Thrice Great. Nice title. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> Sounds badass. <laughs> so, this is their god that they're, they're worshipping. They taught the Greeks to worship. Then, after um, the Hyksos conquered Egypt in 2000 BCE, or BC, um, the priests, the Egyptian priests, then stopped teaching this to everyone. And instead, they start spreading this cult of Osiris and Isis and their son Horus. And they do this to protect these teachings of Hermes. So the, the teachings of Hermes then become secret teachings. 
which is definitely interesting to say the least yeah yeah so now they have like two religions they got one that they just kind of show to the world and like all the peasants and know of this and then this other teaching becomes kind of secret to the privileged people like the priests the royal family very rich people they know about these teachings of hermes which are then become called the hermetic mysteries so they're kind of a mystery because so many people don't know about them. They're kind of secret now. Yeah, you have to have you have to be a person of status or yeah, you have to be deemed worthy. Um like somebody like we might be familiar with or Christians might be familiar with is like the biblical Moses. He would definitely be worthy because he was adopted by the royal family, right? Yeah. No, that definitely I think will resonate with people, make it a little easier to understand. Right. So a little side note about the initiation into these mysteries. <clears throat> this gets a little weird. Yeah. So it's, she calls these the visions of Hermes, and it includes the drinking of special beverages that would induce a trance in which the initiate had voluptuous visions of Isis. Which sounds like psychedelics, right? Yeah, like straight up. like. Yeah, so you drink something and then you start having visions. You go into a trance and have visions. Sounds like they were, yeah, they had something, right? As far as we know, we don't know exactly what was in that beverage. I'm assuming we'll never know, but some DMT-esque or LSD-like experience we could, we could assume. Yeah, probably something mixed with wine or something. So. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how they initiated you into the Hermetic Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Okay, anyway, so Edith goes on. She says um, about this. She says, eventually, Moses, like we said, uh, Moses, he learns the teachings. So he goes deep and he learns about these esoteric Hermetic teachings. Um, and then she says he takes what he learns there and then he adapts it with his own beliefs. You know, or maybe his beliefs with them. Either way, he just he mixes them together, and he creates his own belief system. And she says he creates it to fit the mentality of undisciplined, rebellious uh, masses of Israelites in Egypt. Hence, he basically creates the Old Testament God of fear and vengeance for the Israelites. We'll find a summary of this. In a paragraph in a, in the next chapter, which is titled Judaism, the Pharisees. And it says, quote, in spite of the loud and frequent assertions made by Jews and Christian divines alike, contending that the Jews were the first monotheists, it is a well-proven fact that the high initiates of the Memphis priesthood were monotheists long before the Jews ever went to Egypt. End quote. So basically what she is saying is that Judaism, Christianity, and by extension Islam, because they all started with Moses, they would have all come from hermetic teachings Mm -hmm. that were reinterpreted through Moses to fit their God. And who who knows what other people had their own version or stuff gets lost over time how did it change right it just keeps spreading from there but it is crazy to hear her take on it that 
that Hermes was the origin and that it either dissolved or expanded into possibly multiple different religions that are still practiced till this day, which I find very interesting. Right. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And yeah, what she describes here, it could just change the entire narrative of how we understand the development of these major world religions. Now, the problem with this is I don't know all her source material for finding this. Yeah. So can't really verify this as fact or not. But it's very interesting story. Nonetheless, very interesting information that she puts forth. And I, I found some information like this in reading other things, but n- never something so directly just stated yeah. the way she does. She, she just says it how, how she thinks. Like, she just says it straight up. Right, right. So you might think that's the end of this rabbit hole of this topic, but that's only one side of this um, this rabbit hole. So Moses wasn't the only notable person to take the mysteries and combine them with his religion. According to Edith, Orpheus also did this on the Greek side. So she says Orpheus became an adept of the Hermetic mysteries and after he returns to Greece with this knowledge that he united the cults of Dionysus and Zeus reform that of Bacchus and institutes the mysteries there. So he takes it a step further from Moses. He doesn't just put the religions together. He also institutes his own version of the mysteries, like the Hermetic mysteries. But in Greece, they were called the Eleusinian mysteries. And she goes into great detail, actually, about how these mysteries were performed um, in Greece but like other things she doesn't give a reference so there's no way to know if that is an accurate description or not but we do know for a fact that those mysteries happened and here's what the encyclopedia britannica says about the mysteries in greece it says the mysteries began with the march of the mystai or initiates in solemn procession from athens to eleusis the rites that they then performed in the Telestrion, or Hall of Initiation, were and remain a secret. Something was recited, something was revealed, and acts were performed, but there is no sure evidence of what the rites actually were, though some garbled information was given later by later Christian writers who tried to condemn the mysteries as pagan abominations. It is clear, however, that neophytes were initiated in stages and that the annual process began with purification rites at what were called the lesser mysteries held at Agri on the stream of Elysos outside of Athens in the month of Anthesteron, or February to March. The great mysteries at Eleusis were celebrated annually Um, in the month of Bodromion, or September to October time. It included a ritual bath in the sea, three days of fasting, and completion of the still mystery central rite. 
these acts completed the initiation and the initiate was promised benefits of some kind in the afterlife that's a that was pretty pretty freaking interesting there who knows the the real acts that were performed and actually what happened but doing i could just today it sounds completely weird but imagine you have to do a fast and i'm assuming a bunch of weird i don't know if you want to say rituals or whatever and then after if you successfully complete this you're granted a promise to the afterlife it's just it's pretty freaking interesting to me yeah pretty cool <laughs> so that's what the encyclopedia says about it and then you know going into that earlier um edith was talking about or we said edith talked about in the hermetic mysteries they had this beverage that induced trance right so was there something like that um also in the eleusinian mysteries now unlike the hermetic mysteries which we don't have any information really about that we can trace to the eleusinian mysteries we do um there is archaeological evidence um there is text that refers to these things and from that archaeology has found that there was a drink called kaikion that they drank in the eleusinian mysteries so let's read a little bit about wikipedia says about kaikion just going to read one paragraph this is what it says it says discovery of fragments of ergot or fungi containing lsd like psychedelic alkaloids in a temple dedicated to the two eleusinian goddesses excavated at the mass castellar site provides some possible support for this theory ergot fragments were found inside a vase and within the dental calculus of a 25 year old man providing evidence of ergot being consumed this fungi seems to support this hypothesis of ergot as an ingredient of the eleusinian kaikion so to put it shortly the the drink that they consumed in the mysteries was definitely psychedelic in nature they had some good shit sure. <laughs> yeah they definitely had some good stuff definitely they were taking what became lsd to us could you ever find any probably there's not much information do we know if they were doing like super high doses doses of these things like is there anything i don't think so i don't know how we can find that out but that yeah. would be interesting i wonder if it was like a bunch or i mean who knows who freaking knows man right and it's interesting that it was mixed with wine yeah so, so you're drinking alcohol they're making a cocktail effect yeah yeah you're drinking alcohol and lsd mm -hmm. at the same time as far and as you know an lsd like it's not just L it, it's what they made lsd from okay um they made it from, from ergot okay so from that fungi it's probably not as powerful as lsd but mixing it yeah good. the natural form mixed with wine mixed with this um this ceremony being performed around yeah. you yeah i mean sounds pretty weird yeah it's interesting very interesting yeah yeah so that kind of wraps up the other thing that we had to point out in this book it kind of it can go deeper from there um oh yeah one other thing i wanted to point out was um the eleusinian mysteries 
that we were talking about there, um, there was some pretty important people who took these that we know took these mysteries. Here's a little list: uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, uh, Plutarch, Hadrian, Julian, and Cicero. So, these are some pretty important people, pretty influential yeah. people. Everyone's who, heard of Aristotle and right, and Socrates and Plato. Yeah. So, pretty powerful minds that they went through this process. They went through these ceremonies and these rites and this psychedelic awakening, and who knows? Maybe they had a play of of into why they had such great ideas. Yeah, and this is another thing to connect that uh, we've already pointed this out that like we can't confirm or deny that really anything in this book is factual or not, but even just being able to pull out certain names or certain things and verify at least some facts, you know, it's you got to assume that there's some some real stuff, you know, in this that I, you know, take with it what you want, but when connecting it to certain things it can be very interesting and yeah, definitely yeah you know if not every, maybe not everything's true or not everything has a reference to it but she's building up on top of things that we do know are true it makes you it know? compelling so you know maybe maybe she's given us a full picture or maybe she's just given her idea of the full picture yeah 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 either way it's just i find it interesting to read and Anytime I'm researching something that's in this book, I like to just reference it just to see what she has to say about it. Yeah, 100%. Just get her view on it. You know, That's the best way to take information is to get as many sources as you can and then come to your own conclusion. Right. And I think her conclusion on this stuff is super interesting, man. Super interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of what we got to say about it. Um, you know, if you guys find any of this interesting or if you like digging into these kind of things and like learning about religion and occult and conspiracies then can't go wrong with this book yeah i guess just to put some final thoughts on it maybe put the tinfoil hat on just a little bit uh just the idea of making a psychedelic cocktail i just to me that just makes so much sense like just so much sense i I agree. To me, my my little head, it, I find that to be true. But I would say if there was somewhere right now that you can go through the Hermetic or Eleusinian Mysteries, I would definitely go do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? If you could go down to a place and pay like a certain amount of money and have like a shaman yeah, or yeah. someone with you. Yeah, they're just like, here's the class. We're going to take you through it. Yeah. It, can't you... Uh, there's been a bunch of people you can go down... I God, who knows where in the jungle, whatever country, but you can you can get a shaman and do like ayahuasca. And, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. They can kind of guide you through it. Yeah. I'm assuming that in these this chapter of Egyptian esotericism and her talking about this cocktail of a beverage. I'm assuming it was pretty similar to, to me. Yeah. It probably sounds like a more refined version yes. of it. Yes. Like, yeah, you probably start with shamans out in the jungle and then yeah. over, over, you know, so many thousands of years, it, it becomes refined into this art that they like a play they put on while you yeah. do it, you know, cause you know they weren't shamans in the jungle by this time the egyptians they were building (laughs) pyramids and you know all these impressive architectures so they're much more sophisticated yeah you know so super sophisticated so you would 
yeah, yeah. So you would assume that they've just kind of maybe perfected that. Yeah. And just knew how to. Especially if know. they're almost. Is it now if we just infer this from the book, we can assume that the religions that they either created or based on certain things, it was. You can infer that it was used as a form of control, you know? Um, it, or. Yeah, I would say. It sounds to me like once they changed the religion and they had two different religions, that the one of the masses became one of control. Yeah. yeah. Not saying that that was the end, like the main goal or whatever, but I mean, if you get everyone to, you know, believe in something or fight for something, like that's kind of what it's about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe if you just got the power of intention of the masses. Yeah. You know, just behind you might have some benefit who knows but uh i guess as we wrap this up edith star miller she's super interesting individual and this just scratched the surface on what she has to cover in this book and i don't know i me and red here find it very interesting and i i hope y'all did too definitely so thanks for listening guys have a good one